and welcome to this special edition of the New Model Advisor podcast. My name is Will Robbins, editor of NMA, and today I have not one but two stellar guests to talk about healthcare. Uh, one is Citywire, a Citywire Events regular, who you might have recently heard on another past podcast with comedian John Richardson called The Future Noughts. Uh, don't call him a futurist, do call him an optimist. It's Mark Stevenson. Hello, Mark. Hello, Will. How nice to see you, especially after you've recently become a father and you still look like you, you, you were existing in the world. So that's uh, amazing. <laughs> I haven't yet faded away like Marty McFly's family. That is, that is true. No better statement of optimism about the future than having children. So congratulations. It's, I've certainly got skin in the game now. <laughs> Thank you very much. And uh, sat beside him, virtually speaking, is the CityWire Rated Fund Manager, uh, manager of the uh, Marty UK smaller companies fund. He has a long-standing specialism investing in healthcare companies. It's Paul Jordan. Hello, Paul. Hi, Will. Great pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming. Uh, regular listeners will perhaps feel a sense of deja vu or perhaps, or if it's a podcast, deja entendu. If you be, and you'd be right, Mark and Paul joined me on the podcast in May this year. Uh, back then we had uh, we've had a few months to come to terms with the fact that we're living through a global pandemic, uh, but there were still some big questions looming. Had politicians been caught napping? Indeed, was uh, the healthcare system fit for purpose? Would it be able to respond effectively to the crisis? Had the pandemic ripped off a band-aid to reveal a rotten system, or would it be stimulated to greater things? Uh, but the big question, for me at least, was whether, they, whether we would even see, ever see, a vaccine. Um, and so that's where we're going to start. And um, Paul, I want to start with you. Uh, you never said a vaccine was unlikely, but the way you put it uh, was that, I think, to sort of paraphrase, we should not assume, emphasis on assume, we would have one. We should not assume we were going to have a vaccine, because as you saw it, there were compelling reasons to be extremely cautious. Uh, the track record of creating effective vaccines was poor. Many viruses never get a vaccine at all. I believe there's, there's no vaccine for HIV, for example. Um, now we have not only not only have uh, a vaccine, we have three. Uh, Pfizer BioNTech was the first to publish its results in November, uh, showing it to be 95% effective, I think, uh, but it has to be stored at minus 80 degrees. Then came Moderna, uh, I think that was 94.5% of a similar number. Uh, in terms of efficacy, uh, and the finally one, uh, the final one was uh, the Oxford slash AstraZeneca, uh, which I got a bit confused about. Shown to stop seventy percent of people from developing the symptoms, but there seemed to be hopes that that could be up to ninety percent, depending on dosage and things like that. Perhaps you could clear that up. So, Paul, uh, have we gone from how have we gone from doubts with have one vaccine? To having three that all seem remarkably effective? Good question. And, and remember that we have, we have three that have passed phase three trials. We also have a number of other ones on the way next year. So this isn't the end of the story. Um, I mean, I, th I think if we rewind to when we last spoke, um, it was right to be a little bit cautious about the prospect of a vaccine. It we could have been sitting here today watching all of these having failed and, and probably probably if one had failed, they may well all have failed. Uh, but you know, one of the, one of the um, things which is maybe fair to say about this particular virus is that um, you know, it, it, in some ways it's, it's kind of quite a simple virus. It, it doesn't, doesn't seem to mutate massively. It's not mutating so incredibly fast. It's pretty easy to kill it. Um, it's just that it happens to be so designed that it's both infectious and you know, somewhat dangerous, but by no means horribly dangerous. So, you know, if it was 10 times higher mortality rate, it would probably extinguish itself much faster, ironically, like the, the first version of the SARS virus. Um, but, you know, the fact, that, the fact that we are sitting here together with so many, I think is a, is a really a tribute, and, and, and what was clear back when we last spoke, simply to how much resource was going to be thrown at the problem. Um, and every, everyone could see how valuable a solution this was going to be and how much it was going to be needed so you know the medical community the medical world has really literally thrown everything at this and every company that could have a go has had a go there's been unprecedented cooperation 
there's been incredible amount of government support gone into speeding up the production of this vaccine. And, um, you know, one of the interesting things back at, back, um, you know, near the start of the pandemic was um, that the medical world has recalibrated how you do stuff. And I think actually that's a question worth um, cogitating on in, you know, somewhat in hindsight. Uh, you know, did we do enough of reinventing how things work? And, you know, one of the things that was reinvented through this pandemic was the fact that, you, you know, you start buying the manufacturing equipment, you start ordering the doses before you even know if the thing works. And, you know, I've never really seen that happen before. Um, you know, normally the whole issue with, with medical progress and the thing that slightly drives me nuts about it is just that the timescales are unbelievably long and, and in many ways unnecessarily long. And you know, if you're dying of a disease and you know there's a treatment in progress, but they say, well, you know, don't get excited. We know it works, but you won't be able to have it for another six years. That's kind of frustrating. Um, and, and, you know, it, what's been, I think there's many lessons to learn from how things have, we've shown that things can be done much faster than is the norm, but I think it's probably the norm that is wrong. And we should actually question in the future, well, how do we capture the knowledge about how you make these things happen much faster and keep doing it? Because it's worth, it's worth speeding this all up. Yes, because this has possibly revealed something about how vaccines are normally made. You know, hasn't it? Because I think, you know, I think you, you wasn't a vaccine specific stat, Paul, but you, you quoted something like until 2015 or in the 10 years prior to 2015, pre-clinical drug success rates or getting to trials at the rate that success rate was about 3% or something really small. It sounds like, it seems like the limitations are around will or profit rather than um, our ability to create I, I wouldn't say that. I mean, actually, I, I don't know if you remember the stats from back then, but what, what, what I did say was very encouraging back then was that the statistics for vaccines themselves, or once you get through phase one, the, the, once you get, even get into phase one, into, into human trials, the chances of success are actually pretty good, way higher than for any other kind of drug. And so that's telling you a lot, actually, about that, that, that I did find encouraging. And then the fact that we had so many trials going on with different technologies did mean that there was a reasonable chance of success. Uh, and actually, and actually, there's a good point because we obviously we there's the the three that have made it have obviously captured the headlines. But actually, do you does they, do you know how many? I mean, there were many more studies going on. There's still some more that we can expect news about in the in the future months. Oh yeah, there's some major ones coming through next year. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, okay. I suppose the same question to 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 yourself, Mark. You know, sort of commenting on the on the healthcare system and, and you know as, as Paul was saying that it's just this I mean to given your comment just now Paul but but, but just not notwithstanding that's how you know it shows what can be done yourself Mark you know Mark you've, you've sort of been critical of the healthcare system in, in the past or, or, or rather you've, you've obviously been very vocal about things that could be done differently in the future the innovations and so on so what over the you know in the months since May and what you've seen what what if what is what have you been thinking about? What has that sort of told you? What have people told? What have people told you? I suppose. Well, I think that I mean the thing I've been saying about the pandemic to, and how, what I've been doing with my clients is basically saying the pandemic is kind of a mirror, and it's forced us all to look into it and see you know who we really are. And there's two ways of looking into a mirror in extremists. So one is narcissus, which is you kind of go, oh, I'm still beautiful, and the markets will return, everything will be the same as normal. I just have to wait for the storm, and everybody will love me. Um, I don't know if, how familiar your, your listeners are with the, the Greek myth of Narcissus, but in one version of the story, he ends up killing himself because he can't have his heart's desire, which is his own reflection. So that's clearly not particularly productive. The other way of looking into a mirror, of course, is as catharsis and kind of going, actually looking at yourself honestly and going, I probably shouldn't need to get down the gym or this haircut clearly isn't working or whatever it is. You look at yourself honestly and go, well, the mirror is telling me something. I should probably do something about it. And so... On the best side of things, what the pandemic does is reveals all those inequalities in health, all the things that Paul was talking about, some of the, 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 the delays in getting uh, innovations to market, um, you know, it exposes again the ridiculous incentive systems in some drug development where you can actually be incentivized hugely for making a product that's actually not much better than the last one uh, and all that kind of stuff. So, so it's a kind of a yes and a no, really. And I think the uh, no, there's a great quote from Andy Grove, isn't there? Um, or is it Andy Jordan? The ex-CEO of Intel, I forget his surname said, you know, good, uh, bad companies destroyed by crisis, good companies um, survive them and great companies are improved by them. And I think that's what's happening now systemically as well, not just in healthcare, but everywhere. There are some people who understand 
uh, the, the will have looked into that mirror and we're doing something different. Um, one of my clients, very successful billionaire uh, businessman who I helped one of his companies, you know, look, weather the crisis as it were and, and change their strategy. He said this brilliant thing. He said, uh, um, when the tide goes out, you find out who's got their underwear on. And the tide went out massively, has gone out. And, and, and whether, whether it's healthcare, whether it's the way we think about economics, whether it's the political system, whether it's education system, you suddenly realize that actually society generally is pretty threadbare when it comes to its uh, covering its, 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 uh, its decency. And, uh, and that I think is the great opportunity that's come out of this. Um, how much innovation we'll see, I think, uh, is yet is yet to be decided. But certainly, the, the, there is a, a a big silver lining to the fact that this wasn't solved immediately, because it's made us all have to think long and hard about who we are for an extended period of time. Which means sentiment has changed around the world, and when sentiment changes, anything is possible. So, one of your comments, clients, Warren Buffett, Mark, I know, famously okay. said, it when the tide when the tide comes out, you know, he's he's swimming naked." Uh, no, that was it. wasn't It was it was it was somebody else. But obviously. <laughs> If you have billionaire clients, they tend to make you sign things that allows you not to say who they are. <laughs> and uh, but uh, I mean, like you last time, Mark, you pithily described the healthcare system, uh, you know, globally speaking, as a sick care system, focusing more on tr on treatment than prevention. You've, you've, I think you've sort of talked, hinted at this a little bit. But have you seen anything since May that's changing your mind about that attitude changing, practices changing? Uh, no, I still think it's I still think it's the same. Uh, you know, um, it's interesting. So on the John Rich and the Future Notes podcast that I did with the whole, whole episode on healthcare, and one of the interesting stats that um, I hadn't quite got my head around, but but came to realise was that the most effective healthcare systems in the world are the ones with the fewest hospital beds per capita, which sounds counterproductive. So when a, when when you know a politician of any hue, I'm not doing a political thing here, stands up and says, "Oh, we're making you know another twenty or thirty or forty or fifty hospitals," the kind of like, "Well, why?" You know, why, why are we feeling, what's wrong with these people? The, the NHS spends 14 billion pounds a year on type two diabetes, of which 98% of the cases of that are preventable through healthcare. Sorry, through lifestyle choices. So you've got, we're asking the wrong question. So imagine if you stuck that 14 billion into sports and diet and improving supply chains of food and all that kind of stuff, that would probably be a more efficient thing. So we, so we kind of, we've got these bizarre incentives where you go, oh, you know, let's build some more hospitals if that's a big success. It's a bit like a company going, well, our complaint system is really good. So why are you getting so many complaints? You know, why are we getting so ill is the problem. And nobody really wants to address that. Although I think there has been some shift now. I mean, for God's sake, Boris Johnson has got himself a personal trainer and had a green epiphany. Now, if that doesn't tell you that systems change as a, change as a foot, then nothing will. I mean, changing the entire system that is Boris Johnson. I mean, that is, you know, yeah. some, some, some feat. Um, I mean, no, Paul, I saw you nodding along there uh, in, in agreement. I mean, you know, any, any sort of you know, ideas yourself on how sort of money could be better, better spent in, in this area? Um, well, I mean, I was thinking just following up from the, the point we were on before that about... Mm. Um, you know, what lessons could the, maybe the, the um, medical processes um, capture from this pandemic and maybe keep, mm. I mean, one, one of, you know, it, it's obviously now well known that um, the reason why we could approve the vaccine so fast is because the regulator was studying the progress of it as it went along. And then, yes. you know, so then, then the next question is, well, why don't you always do that? If you, if you save a year of the, of the development, uh, and the, and the answer to that would be, oh, well, we don't have enough regulators. So then, then there's a question which arises, well, actually, if you invested in more capacity at the regulator and you cut down the time to develop new treatments, um, actually, the return on that investment as a community would be massive because you know, the cost of having a 10-year development of a drug is huge. If you could bring that down to four years or five years uh, or two years, I mean, you, you are, you'd, you'd have much, much cheaper out, um, products at the end of it. And, and you know, that's, that's one thing I have kind of thought of at the back of my mind. I mean, you know, I'm sure that people in the medical regulator world will tell me hundreds of reasons why that can't be done. But now it's been shown to be done and it's been shown to be done very effectively. The question is going to be out there. Why not always do it like that? This speaks to the, uh, is it the MHRA? Um, the UK regulator that, that approved the drug and the strange um, uh, day-long controversy <laughs> that, that uh, we'd got a drug approved uh, very quickly uh, and, um, office, and, and UK politicians were talking this up and foreign politicians were talking this down and foreign regulators talking this down. 
but this yes and that sort of speaks to that a bit how did we get this how did that happen so suspiciously quickly and what sort of struck me with our conversations about vaccines and think approval before is this a sequential thing we wait until we've got this bit of news and then we'll then we'll arrange the next meeting sort of you know we'll talk about you know we'll, we'll talk about doing the next step when we've reached that whereas it seems this way this this way around it was almost things were put in place very much in, in anticipation but is that just because it's an emergency though that you're just throwing everything at well, it it's, it's because it's an emergency that they've reinvented how to do it but that doesn't mean they shouldn't carry on reinventing how to do it because it's clearly a much better way of doing it because it, you, you cut you're cutting out you know you, well in this case you're cutting out a year of time that that approval would normally have taken a whole year to do and th there's this funny thing with regu medical regulators is that you know so they normally have timetables by which they have to do stuff so right. you know we're, we're we're looking at we have a company in our vst which um, has just filed the drug and there's a set timetable for when things have to happen and you absolutely can guarantee that those things will happen on the very last day when they have to happen and not a day before and you kind of think well why not why not just get this thing done as soon as possible mm -hmm. you know and if you haven't got the people to do it hire someone else because it's actually much more expensive to keep all the whole sector if you like the whole sector waiting these huge periods of time mm -hmm. but it is just to hire some more um some more some more staff to do this faster it's often the case with with, with regulators this isn't the case of all of them that they're a bit like conveyances when you're trying to buy a house <laughs> like they get paid anyway so it doesn't matter that you really want to get your house completed and you're going on holiday and you're, 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 you know, you've got your child on the way and, and there's four people in the chain behind you all getting irate. They're like, well, it's Friday, it's four o'clock, I'm going home, so yeah. I'm getting paid anyway. There's no, and, and, you know, regulators get paid regardless of whether they do their job well or not. And there are a number of regulators where you have that kind of culture in them. And also on top of that, unfortunately, some regulators tend to employ people who are not really the the sharpest minds in their industry. So the regulators often populated by people who aren't actually that good. And that's why they've gone to the regulator because that's where they get a job. And they've got a very cushy number. Now that's not all regulators, by the way, but that's certainly some, and out of courtesy, I will not name the ones other than the charity commission where that happens. <laughs> I mean, I, that, that, is, that is indeed part of the, the issue here. I mean, and so what, what's been so interesting this time around, it was very different because the regulator wasn't in that position where they get paid anyway and nobody cared how long it took and nobody would really notice. They were right in the front of the headlights, center stage, how long are you going to take to approve this? And, you know, that's, that's, that's a first from, but actually why not keep that level of attention there and, and demand, if we demand much better, much faster performance from our regulators in terms of, in respect of approving drugs, you would actually transform the whole industry and you bring costs down massively. And at the same time, you should be putting the same sort of headline onto the pharmaceutical companies going, why don't you cooperate more? Um, why are you duplicating research and whatever? And why is the incentive model so bad? And why, you know, why, why don't you share more of this stuff? Because actually what you're supposed to be doing is saving lives. And, and, and I think there should be that equal scrutiny on the other side as well. But this, yeah. you know, I totally agree with that. Yeah. It is interesting because, you know, the, the experience I have with regulation is obviously talking to financial firms and, and talking to the, the, the regulator itself and uh, making no assumptions about whether it's on your on your list mark at all but you know recently had papers out that affect financial advisors and of course they there's another sort of um, spell, spell of outrage about the regulator and the way they're treated but you know there, there is an element of this as well this that uh, you know how there's a relationship between the regulator and those that regulate often those who are regulated well maybe in all cases fund that regulator um and th but there seems to there's a very dysfunctional relationship between the two uh and often opportunities for feedback and cooperation feel uh you know like veneers really um and that there's not a proper sort of two-way street uh you know going on where the edicts are handed down they've got a certain set view about things um so possible possibly something you know if the health regulator can learn from its own experiences that perhaps this is something for other industries to, to look at as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I think it was Jim Muir at the Club of Rome who said this great thing. He said, the problem with the universe is once you pick up one thing, you find it connects to absolutely everything else. So if you change the way the regulator works and you change the way the industry works, change the way the industry works, you change the way the press works, change the way the press works, change the way the government works, they all have to do, get together. And the, and the fundamental systemic problem, which has been brought out again by this 
uh, epidemic is that everybody is partisan or has to take a side, rather than realize it's a complex nuanced problem. And we've seen that in the politicization of the response to COVID, which has actually caused some of the delays that we've seen and some of the problems we've had, where people are making, and oh, it happens in this country, which is absolutely shocking, and, and, and in America, we've seen this politicization. And you get people having to defend positions because other people are attacking them. And what we need is a much more nuanced political media and business system, which says, these are problems to solve. We must solve them together as a society. And damn competition, we need to have co-opetition. And if that's, and I think that's something that's come out of, of COVID a lot. And, and certainly some of my clients, even the corporate sector, are going, you know, I am done with this ridiculous drive to compete in shareholder value because it's destroying my soul and the soul of the communities I work in. And it's enough, you know, that great quote from, from Peter Drucker, um, profit for a company is like oxygen for a human. If you don't have enough, you're out of the game. But if you've mistook your life for an exercise in breathing, you'd be missing the point. And I think we've all been missing the point is actually, you know, we are co-inspirational network, our fates are correlated, we are all citizens of planet Earth, we better start cooperating because after COVID comes climate change, and if we don't sort that out in the next 15 years, then we're all dead anyway. He said cheerily, happy Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> so that's something, something for me to read out at Jasper's first birthday, <laughs> uh, my son's first birthday. There, there is a, so, yeah, yeah. Paul. There, there's, uh, one of the things I've reflected on a bit is that, I'm, that in one sense, the vaccines have sort of stolen all the limelight in the last few weeks. And in some senses, that's what that's done is it's, it's covered up a lot of other really interesting activity. And, mm. and, um, and it has made me reflect on one hand how... Um, part of the politicization almost of of the um, medical science in the pandemic has been the governments if you like have very much set the agenda and drawn the attention where they want it and the, you know i think they all recognize well we need a vaccine and that's the only real solution um, but there have been lots of other innovations which haven't captured that same level of attention and therefore haven't if you like had that oxygen of public support and actually public funding and, and um, this huge accelerator pedal that's been pressed for the vaccine hasn't quite been universal. Um, and so, you know, there, there have been a host of other um, scientific innovations, some of which are just much, much less well known, but, you know, they, they, are, they are all actually potentially very important. And some of them will go by the wayside and probably never be used because they didn't kind of achieve that um, government sponsored kind of status. Um, so, you know, there are lots of innovations with curing, curing the illness if you get it. There's, um, um, you know, we, we, we have a company in our portfolio called Synergem, which de developed a very effective treatment, went through a phase two trial. It's, it's um, just starting a phase three trial, but actually it's a good case in point, you know, from a, from a regular point of view, there's no safety issue with this drug. It's likely to work very well because the phase two trial was suggesting that very strongly. Part of me thinks, well, you know, why is it in this situation you would just manage your risk and say, well, yeah, let's use this drug. When, if you think about it, you know, we've used very widely a, um, a drug called dexamethasone from the US, uh, which has been shown to be probably pretty ineffective, but because it had this huge US endorsement, it's you know, widely used in the NHS. Um, whereas actually what, you know, a much less well-known drug that we developed here um, hardly gets used at all. And, that, and, and so there, there are these kind of um, things that happen below the kind of you know, front page of the news headline scenarios, which, um, uh, you know, in some ways are a pity. And, and, and I suppose it's it, to get that accelerator pedal of speed pushed down to the floor, as in the vaccines, you needed the government to be absolutely insisting on it. Um, but actually, it'd be nice, actually, if, if the, um, that reinvention of the processes could go a bit, could be a bit more far reaching. And I think we'd find there's lots of other technologies there that we could be adopting really quicker. And a lot faster, and that would be very helpful. Well, yes, and I wanted to ask about that. You've mentioned mentioned a couple. I mean, do do mention more as they as they come up. As I, my personal view when I was uh, bearish about the vaccine was was that uh, it would it would be about treatment, and may, maybe that won't be so. But here, but here's the thing, you know, uh, the vaccine, the, the the great that we've had success with the the clinical trials of the vaccine appear effective but it really relies on uh people taking them um we we're going to give them to the most vulnerable uh now it's sort of two things it seems well from what i understand there's, there's two things there 
a the, the vaccines will be useful in protecting the most vulnerable that was sort that's that's one question but they're not necessarily a public health benefit if insufficient numbers of the entire population take the vaccine so we can still protect vulnerable people and that will help us go by and large along our, 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 about our, our daily lives but but if and I don't know, but you could perhaps remind me what the percentages is, but actually some very large percentage of everyone takes this. Um, that there's, it's not going to just return, you know, we can't have a situation where it's returned to normal life. Now talk to, talk to, let's talk about that. You know, um, as I said, you know, it's political, isn't it? But also it's cultural that the, the, the spectre of, of anti-vaccine uh, campaigners and anti-vaccination scare stories, it, it was around before the pandemic. I guess when the pandemic became a reality for everyone, perhaps people thought, oh, go away because, you know, the, the, we'll, we'll see sense, I suppose. But no, in fact, it sort of, it, it seems to be uh, a growing movement, a real movement. Um, and, and, you know, I, I won't now assume the rights and wrongs of all of that. Um, I mean, I personally, I will take a vaccine if offered. But talk, talk to me about that, Mark or Paul, about what, how you understand the, fears about vaccination and the anti-vax movement itself and what should be done to address it. For me, the, the, the anti-vax sort of phenomenon is related to a, a sort of just a kind of distrust of science and of the modern world. I mean, you, you, know, you get some people in that territory who will express it through raising questions about, or did, you know, who know quite a lot about how the industry works maybe, and, um, but they're not scientists. But they'll be saying, well, you know, was enough safety done, or we don't know what happens to you after 10 years after you've had this vaccine, how can we possibly know? Um, and that it's just a kind of distrust, you know, on, on that level. So there's one that's slightly more informed and, but in general, it's, 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 it's part of a bigger phenomenon, which is just um, distrusting modern science. And so, you know, the, the, answer, the answers to it will probably consist of one, shutting down the nonsense, which is out there and the kind of malicious stuff, which is, difficult to do in, in today's world when that can spread so rapidly and freely um, through, through sort of social media platforms. Um, but beyond that, it's actually, you know, it's pointing to a wider problem, which is just how do you, how do we bring everybody into this, um, these incredible scientific advances, which are, which are appearing in all parts of our lives. I mean, you know, most people eventually just adopt them because they have to. Like, do you remember when people were suspicious about mobile phones and thought they'd give you brain cancer if you used a mobile phone too long. Um, you know, we've been through this in many, with many, many different phenomena. And then there's the whole 5G thing about how 5G is going to sort of, I don't know, fry everyone's brains or something or other. Um, there's a, just a general distrust. And, um, you know, I, I don't think it's founded in anything very much other than just maybe a slight, slight difficulty to come to terms with uh, and, and to sort of feel comfortable with the pace of scientific advance and, and the mm. level of it. But I think I, I'd expand on that, and I think it is to do with a lack of trust, but I think it's more fundamental than that, which is if you look at the world at the moment, and uh, people in your industry uh, will have some responsibility for this, is that you have mass inequality. So if you are an average citizen, and basically you look at the world as it's set up, and you look at the institutions, whether that's government, whether that's corporations, whether that's NGOs, whatever, and you see that actually, if you're your average citizen in a, apparently a developed world, and most of the rewards are going somewhere else, and your education of your children isn't getting any better, and things are getting slightly more expensive. And you know, over the pandemic, we've seen that the wealth of the billionaires has, is, has massively increased. Then the social contract has broken at a very fundamental and deep level. That's something the COVID pandemic has kind of exposed even further. And so you're sitting there and thinking, well, I'm told that this is all good by a lot of people who seem to be doing very, very well. And in my, in my gut, every time they've told me that, you know, more privatization or uh, lower taxes for entrepreneurs or whatever, you know, is a good thing. Uh, and I kind of, maybe that's a good argument, I don't know. But at the end of the day, it ends up that actually I'm not really benefiting very much. And so it's very easy in that situation to get in and say, you know, well, well you know, there's, there's a conspiracy here or, you know, because it feels like one is an average citizen. It feels like there's a conspiracy because you can work your nuts off and you will never have an inkling of the amount of money that Jeff Bezos will make in 10 minutes. Okay, so, so, you, so that, there's a, that's a very big breeding ground for that kind of distrust. When the actual systems, the systemic building up to the way we've built society 
benefits a very small number of people. Government is not for the people, by the people, of the people. It's by a very small number of people for the benefit of another small number of people, if you look at it from outer space. You know, as William Burroughs said, you know, any visitor from outer space to human of this planet would say, I want to see the manager. Okay. And so when you have that fundamental breaking down of what government and, and the private sector and that social contract is for, it becomes easy to spread any kind of conspiracy theory. Uh, now, I say that with absolutely full disdain for people who promote this anti-vax stuff, because they're not just anti-vax, they're anti-Christmas and Diwali and, and, and Ramadan. They're anti any kind of gathering. They're anti-humanity. They're anti-love. They're anti-sex. They're anti-everything because they want to keep us wearing masks, which they also don't want us to wear. Now, they want to keep us from, it's like it's kind of ridiculous. And if you know that stuff and have any kind of level of, of, of if you're going to speak that loudly, then you better have some responsibility because free speech comes with responsibility. Um, but however, that's also counted by the fact that, you know, we're crushed by a system that, that you know has increasing mass inequality despite scientific advance despite increasing wealth for you know, people like amazon and Apple and all that kind of stuff so unless we're prepared as investors as government people as ngos as civil society to have a really honest conversation about you know where do the spoils of the modern world end up you're going to continually have people going well f this i'll believe anything and that's part of the reason you get populists they'll go i'll vote for anything different you know i told donald trump you know, spats incredible rubbish, but it sounds like, well, you know what, anything different from what I've had before, because another Bush, another Clinton, where things just get a little bit more rubbish time over time and time again, you know what? And so, so there's, that, there's that, that fundamental problem that we have to deal with. And it's, it's not just uh, about anti-science, it's about anti the current systems we have, which is not surprised because the organizations that run the world are running them in pretty much the same way they were 200 years ago. I was, happy yeah. Christmas and a happy new year. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, well, one, of, one of the things you said there, but you know, Mark, you brought out, brought, brought up Donald Trump. I'm sure he's going to be with us for many years. Um, but it was an interesting comment during that week that never ended, uh, still hasn't ended, of, uh, of the US election. Trying to explain, you know, why do, why are some people, why, are they, why does he have such fervent supporters? why do they never seem to be able to convince otherwise? And one of the points they made was that back when Donald Trump was promoting the birth of conspiracy against Barack Obama, was this, this idea that Barack Obama wasn't born inside the United States uh, at, at all uh, and, and couldn't, couldn't be president, uh, that no matter who said it wasn't true and there were rising levels of authority, senators, other authority figures, lawyers, judges it didn't make any difference like it, it sort of it really proved that there was a sort of fun what that was a symptom of fundamental distrust of the authority will tell you the truth <laughs> and i think that's sort of what you're diagnosing there mark is that it's a sort of feeling that if you feel the system your argument is this you feel the system's rigged um financially speaking economically speaking then why not in in other ways i suppose well indeed and let's be honest you know i mean it, it, the system is rigged absolutely it's much easier to accumulate it and i want i actually want to going kind to of turn on to these a little bit later but just one thing for for paul i'm from mark as well but just just in terms of meeting this meeting the skepticism you know i i just you know personal view don't want to give any uh, fuel to the flames of, of anti-vax conspiracy theories. I don't want to feed people's fears with, with nonsense. But are, you know, is it wrong to dismiss people out of hand about being sceptical about a new science, about a vaccine that's being produced, produced so quickly when, as we ourselves have admitted, it has taken such a long time to get things done before? I mean, is it not right for a person to have scepticism about that? Um, you know, and, and, and how... You know, if you were to communicate with me in this reasonable and factually based way possible about the risks of a vaccine or, or to reassure me, how would you do that? Would you, would you be talking about how regu you know, the regulator and the systems that it goes through? Would you be talking about the science, the numbers of volunteers? Would you be pulling up data from, from Pfizer I, that they've published? I, I, you know, what would you be saying to me? I personally would say to you, um, this is about risk management. So yes, if you take the vaccine, you probably have a, um, you know, a kind of 0.0001% risk of something bad happening to you in maybe 10 years time. 
Um, if you don't take the vaccine, you have a, a million times bigger chance of something happening, very nasty happening to you, to you in the next few months. Which one do you want to do? Mm. Um, and it's a blindingly obvious decision. Um, you know, so if you just put yeah. it in, I think in those terms, it's, it's kind of fairly easy to understand it. And it's yeah. pretty hard to paint yeah. a different picture from that. And I think what Paul is doing there is something I was going to talk about, really, which is yeah, actually the, the facts aren't, uh, aren't the sort of thing that will ever convince people. I have this rule I live by, which is the brain does the PR for what the heart has already decided. So you have to speak to the heart. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and the great thing what Paul was doing there was actually, whilst there's were facts, they also spoke to fear. Fear of, of something happening to you, and and that's something that Donald Trump uses brilliantly. That he's the he's the absolute master of using fear to get people to do things. Um, so you know you don't talk about Pfizer and the science and whatever for, for many people. You talk about Christmas and you talk about you know hugging your grandchildren again. You talk about you know do, what kind of emotional world we want. And and then on the other side, you will talk about the fear. What happens if we don't do it? That's I think how you talk to people because you know I like to say if you want to look at the world of most find the nearest prejudiced person, look in the mirror. We all have our prejudices and we all have our rationalities and our irrationalities and our fears, and they are emotional, they're not rational. So you have to work out, and that's why I have a side career in the arts as a comedy writer and songwriter, and I think why Paul is so eloquent because he's you know, a great musician as well. So he kind of understands that yeah, actually the thing that really moves us is, is what moves the heart. And, and so what's wrong with so much communication, whether it's in investment or whether it's in government and public policy, is that people try to talk to your brain. Now, of course, the brain does want that reassurance afterwards, but we have to talk to the emotions. And getting that right is, is, is the essence of brilliant communication. And getting it wrong, you get populism and you get anti-vaccine stuff. Just sort of taking the vaccine to sort of, tell, sort of move on to another, another thing, you know, assuming we have a situation where the rollout of the vaccine is slow and mixed with a, probably a, a reluctance among a, a small but, but stubborn minority, to, to, to take it. You could, I guess you could get a situation where that, that coverage that's required for real public health benefit in this country, let alone the world, is, is some way off. So again, to slightly repeat something, a theme you came on to uh, earlier, Paul, do you think that the, the, the slow rollout, the slow acceptance of the vaccine, assuming that a lot of those people have doubts will probably be convinced by just a year of it being okay. Um, that 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 we get that 2021 is going to see a demand, uh, a newfound demand for some of these other solutions, uh, ways you know that allow us to get along our, our day, our, our normal, our normal lives, our 2019 lives. And what might they be? That's a tough question. I mean, <laughs> yes, I think there will be ongoing demand for testing. There'll be ongoing demand for treatment. I mean, the, the vaccine rollout program won't stop the immediate crisis of people dying from the virus over, the, over this winter. Um, I think what we'll find anyway from next spring will be that even if we didn't have a vaccine, the, the virus will be receding over, it, it is, looks like it's seasonal. Um, so the spring is gonna bring relief anyway. So in, in some senses, right. the real test comes next autumn. And uh, to what degree are we vaccinated then? You know, I personally think that the, um, that people will take the vaccine in general and, and they'll do what their friends do in general. And, and mm. you know, if, if a consensus builds against it, that wouldn't be true, but I, I think it's pretty likely when people are offered it, they, they'll do that risk management calculation and they'll just say, well, might be a risk, but you know, because remember, it's gonna be offered to people who are, who are most at risk from dying of the virus. Yeah. So, you know, do you have a risk of death or a risk of a tiny, tiny risk of something that nobody can tell you what it might be even, um, but you know, it's there. So these things are never zero risk, um, so there is, an, there is a fractional risk, um, and you don't, take a, a, you don't ever have any kind of medical treatment unless you think you need it. Um, but I think, in general, people are going to have it, and therefore, by you know, the next autumn, we're looking at a much better winter ahead than we have, we're going through right now. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, it, there's herd immunity, but there's also herd action. You, you will do what your peers do. I remember a very interesting about in, uh, 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 you know I'm a commission environmentalist and, and uh, I was reading this interesting study about what got people to not have their towels washed in the hotel room um you know so uh -huh. they tried all these different wordings like, no, we're trying to save the planet blah 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 no. and the thing that worked the most was something that said um 94 of people uh, uh who've stayed in this room have chosen not to have their towels washed every day so you want to be part of it. I think the more people yeah. do it, the more people will do it. And the safer it gets, the safer it gets. 
um, you know, uh, yeah, uh, George Church, who's head of Harvard uh, Medicals, uh, medical medicine, head of um, Harvard Meds Genetics Lab. He said people um, hate technology until it's until it stops sucking. When it works, they'll adopt it immediately. And, and a really good example yeah. uh, is is IVF. So if you look at IVF wow. technology, um, when it first came out, it was suggested the moral sentiment was it, across the population was this is an awful and outrageous and disgusting and filthy idea and it was scientists poking around in the most intimate and sacred part of the human experience and you know it was it was ungodly it was unhuman it was it was just you shouldn't you know and that test you babies for god's sake and you can't think of a more horrific sort of way of of phrasing it and so public sentiment was completely against it up until the point it started working and previously infertile couples started having children, at which point, very quickly, in about 18 months, there was a complete turnaround in public opinion where people were writing to their congressman and their MP going, why can't I get this out of my health insurance? Or why is the NSF providing it? So it's an absolute human right for us to be able to procreate. You know, why would you deny this from your citizens? So I think, you know, as more people do it and the more it's proven to be safe. Um, to to other people's standards that they've seen enough people you know take it that they like or whatever uh, I, we will probably we will probably get there because I think you know the fear that comes with not doing it is too great and and actually you know there's the whole economic fallout of of us not doing it properly and there will be a big peer pressure I think to do it which isn't thankfully backed up this time by some really great science. Well. Oh, yes, a very apt example there, Mark. It obviously speaks very loudly to me. Uh, before we started uh, you know, record, recording the show today, I brought uh, in my son Jasper to meet Paul, Paul and Mark, who is himself conceived by IVF. And uh, it's so interesting to think that, that how, how different the social attitudes would be. Now people are clamouring for that treatment. In fact, they find it a, a scandal that the treatment isn't offered for, um, well, a lot, a lot in accordance with uh, NICE guidelines, National Institute of Clinical Excellence guidelines. It's for three, three, uh, you know, it's supposed, it's supposed to offer three full cycles uh, to women under a certain age. It's not universally applied. We had to pay for all of ours. And so, yeah, people, people are scandalized that you can't get this, this treatment for free. It's a miracle treatment. It's, it's a right. How different, how, how things have changed. I think it's a, it's a very good example. Um, Paul, uh, just one thing I want to ask, I mean, look, all, all three of us are fools, idiots, because we, we didn't make ourselves filthy rich by bagging a PPE contract back, back when us all began. I mean, look at us, a, a futurist fund manager, an editor, we know, we're, we're idiots, we're nothing, we know nothing, because we could have made a lot of money from what I've read um, from, from getting one of these contracts. Uh, no, I'm sure many of these people who got the contract to this, but anyway. Um, so, but what I wanted to uh, talk about was was, was PP a little bit. By luck, but have it, Paul. Uh, you're not you're not you're not offering a, a government contract, but you have. Uh, we reported in, in November that you're backing. Uh, I'm going to quote an antiviral textiles manufacturer, HiQ. Um, tell us a little bit more about that investment. Because you seem to be betting on me still wearing a mask this time next year. Uh, PPE, gonna be around it's gonna, and, and continue to be a money spinner uh, for some time, it seems. But, uh, but I thought it was interesting. You know, it's a recent. Yes, uh, I mean, the well. IQ is, I, I think, a, um, a, a really beautiful business, actually, and a, a, a very well formed, um, a great example of what a company can do. It's, it's a very, it's a company that's full of innovations. And it's, it's business is textile technology. So, you know, think of Gore-Tex, um, materials that do things you could never imagine materials do. So, you know, one of the things they make at the moment are curtains that clean themselves powered by um, the sunlight. Um, wow. And they're doing that, I think, with Ikea. Um, but actually the chief executive of this business, who is a, a great character, he, he, he had some friends of his in Switzerland um, in I think 2014, when the Ebola epidemic um, um, uh, came to Africa, um, some friends of his were volunteering to go to Guinea to help um, solve that pandemic. And he thought, well, you know, if you're going over there, I better make you something that's going to protect you. So they then invented um, a textile that was uh, able to, that would kill microbes and viruses that landed on it. 
and um, and they called it ViraBlock. Um, and then you know they gave it to them, and it, it worked for them. They came back alive, and and then they put it in the drawer and kind of forgot about it until the pandemic came along. This pandemic came along, um, and then they thought, well, actually, this this you know this has another use. So you know, of course, for 2020, it's given them uh, a major boost to their sales because you know yes, this tech, this um, fabric is now being used by all kinds of manufacturers for making masks. It, it could equally well make clothing. Um, you know, one thing I was thinking of in, in respect of the environment is, you know, um, actually PPE, one of the really big problems of PPE that is almost never talked about is just the unbelievable amount of plastic that gets used and wasted. Mm-hmm. And actually, if instead of doctors putting on 10 different plastic gowns every day and throwing them away, they had a coat they could put on that was antiviral and anything that landed on it, you knew it was gonna get wiped out. Um, actually, that would make a pretty big environmental impact. And what one of their other technologies, and Mark might be interested in this, is they have invented a, a different, a different um, technology for dyeing uh, nylon. And apparently the dyeing of nylon uses something like, I don't know, creates three or 4% of the world's carbon output every year. It's, it's absolutely wow. vast because yeah, dyeing so much nylon. Yeah, the dying of materials is one of those great environmental disasters that nobody talks about. And in fact, the entire fashion industry is 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 such a catastrophically uh, un, an industry that promotes itself on sort of you know how wonderful and beautiful we are is that is literally the world's most unaware and narcissistic industry in the world, particularly when it comes to the planet on which it operates. So yes, that, that's uh, that's a great interesting. Thing. Yeah. But talking about that 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 uh, textile, you know. Well, you've got to realize that, you know, this isn't the last pandemic we're going to see. There are literally hundreds of zoonotic viruses ready to cross over, and we don't know how or when, because our relationship with our planet has been so compromised by our economic system, which doesn't value it and treat it with respect. And I saw a great tweet the other day, which says something like, you know, maybe maybe the planet and the climate is a real thing, and our economic systems are the imaginary thing. Maybe we should think about it that way, right? And have a new economics like Kate Raywood Stoner economics, where we can all thrive, you know, within the need, within the constraints of the planet, but giving everybody what they need, rather than going for you know continual and rampant growth. You know, growth is good at one point. You've got a young son, and you'll want to see him grow. But if he carried on growing past eighteen, then he's probably got a cancer or giantism. You don't want that. So it's about having a new economics as well. Uh, so you know that 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 textile very good because you know this isn't the, this isn't the, the last pandemic we're going to see. Uh, no. This could be a long emergency the next thirty yes. years as we reinvent our economics and our politics so that we can deal with these problems and and and, and you know we're not going to deal with these problems by more rampant uh, unequal capitalism. Mostly, when we have a crisis of this magnitude, we spend the next ten years solving it. And then it doesn't happen again. Something else happens. So I think yeah. that we can be pretty clear that the next thing that catches us by surprise and causes a major crisis won't be a pandemic because we'll be expecting one, and we'll be we'll be able to deal with it. Um, mm. It'll be something else. And and you know, for for the ten years after the great financial crisis, we were solving that. Um, and so you know, yes, we'll, we it, this will happen again. But in terms of high I mean, high is in like an Aladdin's cave of textile technologies. It's not just antiviral. And actually, this. This mask, um, which I've got on here because I, I wear it around the office. Um, yeah, show us the mask. It's not just um, antiviral. It's also um, uh, you know super quick drying. It's um, you know has several other technologies built in, which make it a fantastic mask. Um, but you know they just have all these technologies at their fingertips. Um, but you know that one to do with nylon dyeing is of great environmental importance. It would reduce the energy consumption of nylon dyeing by about thirty three percent which potentially, if, if the whole industry adopted it, it would reduce carbon emissions globally by 1%. You know, it's unbelievable thought that one, you know, textile technology could do that. Um, it's not, of course, the whole industry won't adopt it for lots of reasons, but that, that's the potential. I kind of feel I should say something to Mark's point about the system, in, you know, and, and I do get that, of course, the frustration with the system we're in and inequality um, is is a horrible and difficult issue, um, but it's also it's an issue which uh, it's as old as human society. I mean, you know, there, there's never been an equal society any time the humans have been around, um, and so every generation has to confront it and and deal with it in its own way. I mean, I I do think that maybe another way of kind of dealing with some of the issues Mark was raising is to talk about 
um, stand back a little bit and talk about industrial revolutions and how do they impact society. And, you know, clearly we, we are in the midst of just the most almighty industrial revolution. And, and it's, it's, we're so close to it, it's hard to actually see it. Mm. But you know, everyone I meet in business just talks about the incredible pace of change. It's sort of bewildering. And every year it seems to speed up. This thing never slows down. And now we're talking about artificial intelligence and the extraordinary impact that's going to make. Um, you know, we're talking about gene editing, huge innovations in medicine com coming to fruition after 30, 40 years of work and science behind them. Um, and that, that's just the tip of the iceberg, it feels like. But so if we just try and stand back and say, well, you know, what are the characteristics of industrial revolutions and how, you know, and one of, one of the characteristics is that they make some people incredibly rich. Mm. I mean, there's no getting away from it. Every industrial revolution you can look at has done that. Um, has that necessarily been a bad thing? Has that destroyed all the merits of that industrial revolution? I would argue not, because the other thing that happens with it is that actually, um, when we get to a certain phase of it, of an industrial revolution, um, the benefits are incredibly widespread. And, and I would argue that in this industrial revolution, the benefits are actually widespread too. I mean, you know, when, I was, when I was growing up, you know, what would you have thought if you'd said that, well, in, you know, when you get to 50, um, everybody in society is going to carry around in their pocket a computer that's more powerful than the one that sent the spaceship to the moon in the 60s. I mean, I wouldn't have believed you. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's it, it, uh, uh, it, this is getting interesting now. I mean, it sounds, you know, talk about industrial revolutions, it, it, you, know, you look at the last one, it sounds very much like, you know, a lot of people have read The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, but not many people read his companion book, which was uh, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which actually talks about, you know, this is, uh, you know, what, what we're doing here is we're putting a price on something uh, but we're not we're not understanding its value. So I can put a price on the wood that I cut down, but I have not really costed, costed in the value of the forest that you lost. And yes, we've all got a computer in our pocket, but there are a billion people on the planet who don't have a toilet. So to say things are evenly distributed, I think is... I didn't is, say evenly distributed. Or, or, or more so distributed. distributed. I said widely <laughs> distributed, not and even. You're absolutely right, Paul, that, you know, you'll never have an e a complete equal system. Indeed, you wouldn't want one because, you know, there, there would be no weather, really. There'd be no incentive to strive or do anything. No. But it, we are at a point of, of extraordinary inequality. And I think that's been exposed to the code of the digging. And yes, and I think we need to redress that balance. And that's not going to be done by adopting some of the same metrics and incentives that, that got us into this problem in the first place. So one of the ideas that I've been uh, positing at the moment, which is be getting some traction, is the idea that you could change corporation tax such that the more environmentally and socially responsible you were as a, an organization, and you'd have to think about how to measure that, you have to have good regulators and all that kind of stuff, the lower your corporation tax. So you'd incentivize com good companies that made a profit and made it, make it easier to do a profit if they also did good by society and by, by the environment. And then that's a nice way of changing the incentives within the existing system. But look, um, we'll wrap it up there. Uh, but look, for, as again, for the second time in the year, it, it hasn't proved to be too, too many. We could go third and fourth. It's been fantastic to have uh, you both on, Paul and Mark. So uh, we'll finish there. Thank you very much. <laughs>